0: Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Actress, writer, producer, and director Ida Lupino was far ahead of her time. She was a top-tier actress, appearing in over 60 films opposite the likes of Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, and Bing Crosby, and under the direction of talents like Raoul Walsh and Nicholas Ray. But her achievements behind the camera are even more astonishing— She was the only female director of studio films during the apex of her career, the second female member of the Directors Guild, the first woman to direct a film noir, the first to direct an episode of The Twilight Zone. The list of her accomplishments goes on and on. While the film industry of today continues to struggle with nurturing greater diversity behind the camera, she broke the mold seven decades ago. And even more impressively, She navigated the studio system during her day to explore taboo themes, bigamy, unwed pregnancy, and even rape among them. Therese Grisham and Julie Grossman have written a terrific book on Lupino's directorial efforts titled Ida Lupino, Director, Her Art and Resilience in Times of Transition. The book gives Lupino her due both as a cinematic stylist and as a maker of brave and unique socially conscious films. We were thrilled to speak with Therese and Julie about Lupino's work. The first voice you'll hear belongs to Julie.
1: Her father was um, quite well-known in England um, as a stage performer. She was sort of pushed into acting because it was what was expected of her. You know, at, at a certain point later in her life, she made a comment that always stayed with me where she said, after all, you can't act your life away. Which, you know, is, is a sort of tossed off remark, but I think really gets to, um, her sense of wanting more than performing in front of the camera. Um, and she was obviously, you, you know, a, a really fine, um, actor. And she, her sensitivity, um, and her, her expressiveness, um, I, I think, um, are apparent to anyone who watches her film. Anyway, she came over to the U.S. Uh, in the 30s uh, on a contract with Paramount because uh, the executives had seen her in a film in England, and they saw like one scene or they saw part of a film in which she was, uh, seemed quite sweet. And so they, they, they wanted to cast her in uh, an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. And when she came to the studio after she had arrived with her mother um, to the U.S., um, she appeared as, as she was, as kind of, you know, saucy, uh, precocious young woman. And, you know, one of the executives said she seems more like Mae West than Alice in Wonderland. And so, um, <laughs> you know, um, we were really interested in, again, you know, the, the sort of, the the struggle uh, she had to sort of define herself in ways that would allow her to express her creativity. Uh, she was incredibly versatile as an artist. Uh, she wrote music. She loved to write uh, and said at one point that that was her favorite thing. Um, obviously, a very talented performer, and her directing work uh, is intriguing as we talk about, you know, throughout
0: the uh, the book yeah and 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 reading about her experiences as a as an actress in those early days it's amazing just how it's seems like there's an element of of self uh confidence in her that she knew what was right for her she wasn't afraid to turn down roles which she often was kind of a almost an above the title uh star the female star of some of these movies and so for her to have the Uh, be brave enough to turn down roles. That didn't really endear her much to studios at the time, did it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And as we talk about in the book, it was interesting an opportunity for her to sort of, um, you know, go to sets uh, where directors uh, like Rowell Walsh um, and others were directing. And it was how she learned her craft when she was on suspension. Mm. Um, So she was always kind of, um you know looking for opportunities and you know uh again just really um sort of versatile and incredibly energetic um so looking for projects that would excite her um and yes absolutely i mean this is why we have resilience in the subtitle of our of our book because we saw that you know her art and her resilience worked together to make her um successful and quite remarkable
0: and the if you were to choose the in terms of her performing career, her time vault performances, what what would you recommend?
1: So definitely for me the hard way, um, and I'm interested in that film for a number of reasons. One is um, she it was directed by Vincent Sherman and. Uh, she was lauded in the film. I think she won the New York Critics Award um, for that for that for her performance in that film as, again, a sort of, you know, tough broad who um, is, lives with her husband in this kind of down-and-out um, uh, uh, home um, without any resources. And she decides that she's, her sister is quite talented, and she decides to do whatever it takes to make her sister successful um, in entertainment. Um, And she actually, you know, was very anxious in playing this role that it would, um, you know, that people would see her as really, you know, kind of vicious. Um, And I actually see her as this incredibly strong, a sort of version of the, the femme fatale where that figure you know grows out of um you know desperation and energy and an insistence on um on forging a life that's better than what society typically allows women and so and also the sister bond in the film is really interesting so um that film um the um, uh, I would say um on dangerous ground, the Nicholas Ray film is she yes. Blind woman. Um, uh, I would say. Um,
0: what is the film where she sing, where where she sings that the the one for my baby number?
1: <laughs> Roadhouse. Oh, Roadhouse. Okay. Oh my god. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, we we talk about that. I think at the beginning of the book, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she, she um, you know, has incredible charisma in that film. And again, it's a film where she plays a femme fatale in a classic noir film where she commands all the attention, you know, because of her, her charisma um, mm. and um, presence. And, you know, even though she doesn't have this sort of, you know, a um, a sort of a melodic voice, um, she is so interesting um, in performing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. Except you and me So set up, Joe I've got a little story you ought to know We're drinking, my friend To the end of a brief episode they it one for my baby And one more
2: for the road well, I mean, her voice, she was lauded for that at the time, um, mm. saying that, you know, her voice sounds like a, a female hoagie Carmichael. Yeah, right, <laughs>
1: right, 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 right. Yeah, and I think a couple of other films that uh, your, your listeners um, might should take a look at. Um, They they Drive by Night, um, mm. with yes. Steve Raft and um, Humphrey Bogart. Um, and she plays um, a woman who sort of, you know, goes goes crazy, um, and she's another femme fatale, but she has this incredible courtroom performance, you know, where she sort of famously, um, you know, she, she kills her husband, but again, you know, in, in the film, because he's a sort of drunken lout um, and trying to gain some kind of freedom, um, but in this courtroom scene, she's sort of, um, she's, um, loses, you know, her, uh, um, her self-possession and, and she starts screaming, the doors made me do it, the doors made me do it. And I saw the doors. I heard the note. I saw the doors. The doors made me do it. Yes. The doors made me do it. (laughs) The doors made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> the doors made me do it.
0: Lapino's feature directorial debut came in 1949 with the release of Not Wanted, a drama about a young woman who falls for a musician who impregnates, then abandons her. The film also marked the debut of its leading lady, Sally Forrest, an actress who would also star in two more of Lupino's films. Therese, her first directorial effort, which she, I think it's her first, which she didn't actually get credit for. She kind of had to stumble up into that out of necessity, the, the not wanted film.
2: Well, the original director, Julie, you're going to have to help me here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got had a heart attack. So she stepped in,
1: I think, on the third day of... She- yeah, she, she took over um, directing. And um, as we talk about, you know, it, it was not an easy um, process. As many of the films she directed um, were not easy because of this the subject matter. So here she was making a film in 1949 um, about um, unwed motherhood. Uh, and um, she was battling with the censors, uh, with the production code administration throughout. But she also did, um, particularly in, in relation to The Hitchhiker, but also Outrage, um, which was uh, a story about uh, a woman being raped. Um, but Not Wanted, I think, is, is really quite remarkable as it establishes her directing career as someone who is interested in the stories of marginal women. Um, And also, you know, viewers will observe her incredible shot composition. I think of, you know, like scenes like where um, Sally is sort of scaling the walls as she's walking up the streets of, you know, of the city um, and how um, visually expressive uh, um, Lupino's shot composition is. Um, but yeah, so I think notable about that film um, are the the fact that she she did sort of become the director um, as a, a matter of coincidence. Um, also, that she found these young performers, um, you know, who who were not well known, and that was one of the things that she wanted to uh, to do was to give um, performers who were not famous a, a chance. Um, and also, you know, again, establishing this, this sort of um, investment, this, this belief in telling stories that Hollywood wouldn't normally tell and stories about about people for whom the so-called American dream was not on offer, um, mm. like young Sally, um, who um, is following her desires and then um, has uh, an awfully traumatic experience Um, and, and, you know, as we talk about that, you know, Luquino really drawn to, to the, the theme of female trauma. Do you wish to tell me the name of the father and his whereabouts? Perhaps we could communicate with him. I don't know where he is. He went away. I haven't heard from him since. I see. Well, tell me, my dear,
0: have you decided whether you want to keep your baby after it's born?
2: I don't know. All of her films contain elements of film war, and all of her films are, um, in one way or another, social problem films, and predominantly for and about women, which was not, definitely not usual fare in Hollywood. And so, therefore, I mean, it's really not surprising. That she had to do battle with the censors. And, you know, she wanted to make movies that they sort of emulated Italian neorealism, you know, about the lives of, of real, sort of regular people, um, mostly women who, uh, you know, suffered these traumas.
0: This was the Hayes Code that she was working under, right? Yeah. So when she's dealing with subjects like. Rape and 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 bigamy and and uh, uh, all of these different subjects she worked on. Uh, d- were there were there fights? Were there battles with the with the code? Oh
2: uh, yeah, I mean that's not how she waged war though. You know, she didn't. She wasn't. Um, it, she she was very diplomatic and she knew how to butter up the censors, but she also you know using techniques and methods like that.
1: She got her own way.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. I think that's, that's well said. And she, she was, um, you know, as, as Teresa's saying, um, you know, she was interested in compromising so that she could make the films. (laughs) And um, so rather than, you know, kind of, you know, dramatizing the process, she would, she would, she would butter up the censors, um, and she would find ways to get as much of her um, intentions filmed um, as she could. For example, filming the labor scene, Sally's labor, and not wanted from a subjective perspective, um, mm. which allowed her to navigate the censors' uh, um, demands that she not uh, focus on. Uh, female on on the labor
0: scenes. One of Lupino's strongest directorial efforts was 1950s Outrage, the story of a young woman who must deal with the unforeseen trauma that lingers in the aftermath of a rape. This emotionally acute drama featured actress Mala Powers in a powerfully raw lead performance.
1: They're all staring at this house. They're whispering. All day they've been looking up. And people are sorry about what happened. I'm going back to work tomorrow. If they want to stare; let them have a good look.
2: There's a great deal of sort of film noir German expressionism in it. But at the at the moment of the rape, the actual rate, when you know she's finally caught, um, all we hear is the blaring of a horn, the so truck horn that's blaring, and that kind of is the sound bridge to the next scene of her stumbling home at night so that that was a best way of taking care of the rape i mean it also i mean i clearly we we also see uh, again this is repeated her subjective perspective mm-hmm. and not the the violence act itself
0: yeah outrage is a uh, it's just a staggering movie you know, I, in the past few weeks, I've I've been uh, revisiting her movies, some of some of which I saw before and watching for the second time. And you know, we we talked about uh, something like Not Wanted or or several of her other films. And when you watch these films, you're not only taken in by Ida's obvious gifts, but also somebody like Sally Forrest, who who was featured in several of her films. And I, I gained a whole uh, uh, appreciation for her as a performer as well. I mean, it was equally as brave for an actress, someone on the other side of the camera, to take on these kind of taboo subjects.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of powers and outrage is, is really, um, that's a stunning performance. Um, yeah. And as you say, Sally Forrest in um, uh, Never Fear, um, the, the film that uh, Lupino directed about um, an artist um, stricken with polio um, and not wanted, which we we we, we talked about earlier. Um, you're right. And, and, and I think that's um, an opportunity that to make a point about one of Lupino's gifts as a director, which was her sensitivity to actors. And all the good performers who worked with her um, commented on what a good director she was because she understood. She had, she had, uh, been a performer. She was an actor. She, so she understood actors, and I think that's why she was able to draw out um, these these young performers um, like Sally Forrest and Mala Powers and um, uh, Keith Brassell um, yeah. so, um So, so I, I I agree that you know the the performance. The, they're quite brave performances by these these young women, um, you know, who are tackling really controversial subjects. Sally
2: Porr's performance in Hard Fast and Beautiful is amazing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm.
2: Yeah. and, and so The moment when she really takes in that, that her mother is exploiting her is, is intense.
0: Mm. And these movies are so incredibly prescient. Uh, I, I mean, For the time they were made, I'm thinking of something like Never Fear – which is uh, essentially a dancer stricken by polio and she's uh, and she's confined to a wheelchair for much of the film. And uh, did that does that seem like a particularly personal film for Ida? Didn't she experience the, the kind of the effects of polio herself as a youngster? Yeah,
1: she did. And I think, you know, as you say, that that was a very personal story for her. And of course, you know, we need to remember that this is before the the vaccine was available. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so it's a very topical um, subject, and as you know, and and, and deeply personal. And um, you know, Lupino, I, I think, did some amazing things in in that film, um, which did not, uh, you know, have much of uh, as much of an audience when it came out as her other films did, but you know, that the wheelchair dance, that square dance is, is mm. quite remarkable. I mean, very moving. You'll be surprised at what you'll do when you've made up your mind to live again.
2: Hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to take you to a dance. A dance?
1: Sure.
2: I'm going to take you to our square dance Saturday night. Right. You ever done any square dance?
1: Yes. And I don't think you're very
2: funny. <laughs> but I'm serious. We have them all the time. Come on, how about it?
1: I have to go now.
2: See you Saturday night.
1: I wouldn't count on it. I
2: can't do it. Let's get me out you of here. You can do it, Salty. Come around. round you go. Get all the traffic. Come on.
1: You know, that film, like um, other of Lupino's films, that film is really it very much relies on location shooting. Uh, the Kabat Kaiser Institute uh, is was where she shot those um, those scenes. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I think it underscores Lupino's interest in that that kind of realism, um, that yeah. sort of post-war realism that we and talked she about. Really, and
0: she really used uh, she really used patience there, didn't she?
1: Yeah. Yeah, she did.
2: Yeah, I mean, she pretty much, uh, you know, she was really impressed by Roberto Rossellini. I mean, a lot of people in Hollywood and in America were impressed by neorealism. And she was doing the same sorts of things at the same time and wanted to continue in that vein. So, yeah, using real people, non-actors, location shooting, you know, without uh, contrived, a con- so-called contrived mise-en-scene and uh, a lot of post-production work. Those were uh, some of her
1: hallmarks. Yeah. And I I think that film is also interesting. You know, it's probably least associated with film noir of Lupino's film thing, yet for me, the representation <sighs> of the failed American dream that's such a prominent theme in film noir mm-hmm. is really uh, important in Never Fear. Like that whole sequence about the happy homes, you know, and the the film's deeply ironic treatment of, you know, uh, post-war domesticity uh, and the exploit. Well, the that,
2: that, yeah, and the hustlers, you know, trying yeah. to exploit uh yeah, you know the, the idea Roosevelt's idea that you know everybody should have housing, you know, and a home to a place to call home.
0: You know, it's it's almost built when you're thinking of something like Never Fear or Outrage. They're almost structured. Uh, they're structured very similarly, in that at the beginning you're told uh you know that this is true it's shot on the real locations blah 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 and 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 and, a, and a, the lead female character goes through a traumatic experience she kind of loses her way finds this figure that helps her regain her confidence and then she ends up going home again by the end like returning to her to her roots uh and i, I and i think i read some earlier criticism of her work that said you know as groundbreaking as she was in her heart in some of these films, uh, a lot of them are very the ultimate message is very kind of conservative
2: I, I i don't we don't agree with that at all If you just take outrage as an example you know there's enough ambivalence and ambiguity there, and we we have prior knowledge of what going home means that we know that, you know, things are never going to be the same. She's going home because the man she loves and wants to marry won't have her, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's going back to a guy who had absolutely no understanding of her situation, who even treated her violently, you know, kind of, her parents are completely out of it. It's a terrible place to live. Everybody knows what happened to her. You know, going home is not going to be a, a happy ending, you know, but I think her ultimate message is, you know, just don't, don't be fooled by this,
1: you yes. know? I, I, yeah, um, and, and you could say, um, about the end of Not Wanted, um, that, I mean, that's not a particularly happy ending, I mean, you know, Drew just kind of crumbles to the ground, you know, as he's trying to chase Sally and she comes back out of love and sympathy, but the camera sort of retreats and you get this sort of long shot of the two of them crumpled up together on the ground. I mean, OK, so maybe they'll be together, but it's such a muted ending. And so it actually really goes against the sort of ameliorative cinema that a Hollywood film touts. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, I, uh, I I don't think that, I, I think that's, you know, a sort of superficial um, mm-hmm. response, um, you know, that, that just because, and, and think about also the ending of The, of the Bigamist, which is quite ambiguous. We yes. don't know what's going to happen, you know, with these three. It, it looks pretty horrible, actually.
0: The Hitchhiker is one of the classic film noirs, and perhaps Lupino's most popular work as a director. It's also the only one to feature an all-male cast. Released in 1953, the film is based on the real-life exploits of Billy Cook, a death row inmate at the time of the film's pre-production, who was convicted of murdering six people in a cross-country killing spree. The film opens as two unsuspecting male friends pick up the hitchhiker as they travel to Mexico on a fishing trip, face front.
1: And keep driving. From now on while you're driving, keep both hands high on that wheel. And you keep one hand along the top of this seat. The other hand high on that window. All right. now turn off the next side road we come to.
0: First of all, just that there isn't a question in this, I just want to tell you guys, it's one. Of, it, it contains one of my favorite shots in all of film noir, which is near the <laughs> beginning, where the hitchhiker first enters the car, and the camera kind of dollies in to the back seat, and he leans forward with the light illuminating his face, and, uh, oh, that's such great noir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is, yeah. uh, she was the first female to direct a, a studio noir, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, um and also I should add that she she had just had a baby too. So she was tramping around the southwest, you know, um, shooting in, you know, the, the desert and um wow. she was roundly criticized by the by the government um because when she made the hitchhiker, um Billy William Billy Cook was on death row and so um, there were rules about representing um, you know, stories of, of people who were, who were on death row. And so she had to negotiate that. Um, also, she was negotiating with the, you know, the, the censors and the government. Um, also, you know, went to San Quentin to visit Billy Cook, uh, to, to get a release signed and to give him, um, a, a money for his story, uh, which I think is, Amazing, Um, and it it is. It's visually, you know, um, an incredible, an incredible film. But also, you know, the 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 traits of film noir. You know, the the sense of futility, um, the questioning of, um, you know, gender, masculinity. um, Mm -hmm. You know, the the sort of um, weird inversion um, with um, the, the characters you know who are the so-called good guys the sort of post-war trauma you know um that you know this this idea that roy and gill um are are themselves kind of prone to violence you know which is symbolically seen and you know the the moment is, is gill is having to you know shoot the can from yeah. uh uh hand and you know all of that sort of post-war stress about about gender, you know mm-hmm. um, and 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 the, 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 the symbolism of the one eye always being open, which is also kind of stunning. you know this, this sense of you know never be able to escape you know trauma or violence, you know the the, the ambiguity of whether or not you know, Gil and Roy can get away because Myers may be awake yeah, under constant surveillance. Yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. If her choice to not, um, you know, to, to have so much Spanish in the film and to have the, the Mexican uh, characters speak in Spanish without translating. I think it's really interesting in terms of the film's investment in realism. These are men trying to escape the world of
2: domesticity to which American men and women were supposed to return after World War II, and that's where they were supposed to find their bliss. But these are two men, like so many men in America at the time, white men, middle class, you know, felt suffocated by that. And so they're making their escape, and uh, they lie to their wives. They tell them they're going fishing, you know, when in fact, you know, they're wandering around and Maybe, at first, you know, they will stop at a strip club they've been to as soldiers, stuff like that, you know. um and this is sort of the um, ironically, their escape, is, uh, just further entrapment, and the entrapment is in um, sort of the socio the, the sociopath as being the apotheosis of American masculinity, you know, you know this autonomous guy who made it on his own. Stuff like that, all these ideals that become utterly perverse in the
0: film. Was she uh because when you talk about I Lupino you talk about a lot of firsts. I mean the the, the only w- a woman directing studio pictures at that period of time when she was operating uh the first woman to direct a film noir, uh on and on and on. Was she concerned with being first? I mean, was that a cognizant goal in her mind or or not
1: i I wouldn't say thanks i don't so. I, don't, I I wouldn't say so. I mean, she was ambitious in the sense of of wanting you know to make art and make films and um you know be creative, but not in that in that sense of um you know competition. competition. i agree in fact, so many of her and her films are kind of about this sort of um problem with competition. think about you know hard, fast, and beautiful. I think that that film is really interesting because it sort of has two um, representations of ambition and competition. One is the, the Fletcher version, you know, which is kind of awful and exploitative, um, you know, about, you know, the importance of winning. And the other is this young woman, played by Sally Forrest, who is literally kind of, you know, um, competing with her domestic experience by playing tennis against the garage door and, and trying to, you know, imagine some better life for herself. So, so I think that's that's a, one of the interesting things to me about that film is that it has that sort of double view of ambition and competition um, where, it, you know, that's um, determined by gender. You know, for men, it, it means one thing. And for women, it means something very different. Um, and I think was was sensitive to that.
2: Her template, you know, or the model she has offered us in film history is one of collaboration, you know because yes, she was a produ- one of the producers, yes, she was one of the writers, and once you know she acted in her films, but um in her directing, she collaborated with everyone. I think a good example of that is outrage, where the production designer, Henry Horner or Harry Horner, excuse me. Um, his his hand is felt very heavily in the in the the, the visual um, work that resembles German expressionism, which is the world he came out of. And she wanted that. You know, she wasn't trying to be number one. She
1: wanted to
2: collaborate.
1: You know, um, her, she had a, a nickname on the set of Mother, um, and it was sort of um, printed on her director's chair. Um, and that came from early on when she was mentoring these young actors like, uh, Sally Forrest and Keith Purcell. Uh, but, you know, sometimes Lupina was criticized, you know, for sort of falling into stereotypical female, um, roles like mother. Um, whereas, um, I, you know, I, I think that's, um, a little bit wrong, wrong headed, um, because that, that role of, of, of mother was really um, a sign of how uh, familial and collaborative um, she was in thinking about um, film production, Um, you know, so it actually gets back to our earlier conversation about negotiating with the censors and, um, you know, her um, conciliating when she needed to and yet holding on to uh, the, the points that she needed to to make the film she was trying to to make. Um, but, you know, she would say things. I think this came from some of her, her television directing. She, she'd say things to her performers like, you know, um, I know this is going to sound a little kooky, but Mother, you know, wonders if you could try it this way, you know, or wonder <laughs> if you could try it that way, lovey bird, or, you know, so she had this kind of Way drag of, her, a drag persona, really? Yes, right, right. So she had this way of asserting herself that was non-threatening and yet decisive. And so I, I think that um, the, the the point about collaboration is is really important. Um, yeah, and and kind well, of defines her feminist filmmaking.
0: Did, did, did she consider herself uh, a feminist?
1: No. I, I don't think, but I
2: think that's because, I mean, maybe in a different era, possibly, yeah. maybe
1: she would have said
2: yes, but you have to remember this is when people were trying to sort of, or critics, feminist critics were um, talking with her in the 70s and so on, and she did not want to align herself with um, a movement that was, you know, political, I think.
0: Yeah. You know. mm. And she, she just to clarify, she I think it was her second husband, uh, Collier Young. She, mm-hmm. when she really truly embarked in earnest on her directing career, she formed a uh, production company with him, the the filmmakers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Also with Melvin Wald. Um, yep. there are three of them, but Wald was a writer and. Lupino was producer and writer and director and Collier Young was producer. Yeah. And that's how the labor was divided up.
1: What price should a
2: woman pay for one night of indiscretion? Are you sure you want me? I'm sure.
1: I I love on earth.
2: The bigamist. One careless moment, one false step, and three people were trapped. How long has this double life of yours been going on? Filmmakers, producers of Hollywood's most daring motion pictures proudly presents Joan Fontaine, Ida Lupino, Edmund O'Brien, and Edmund Gwen in the shocking story of two women who gave all their love to one man. See The Bigamist.
1: To a point about um, how open, how remarkably open Lupino was, I mean, think about The Bigamist. So she was... Um, divorced from Collier Young, who was producing the film. <laughs> and um, Collier Young's wife, Joan Fontaine, was one of the female leads in The Bigamist. So here she is directing um, Joan Fontaine in a film and and herself performing in The Bigamist and working, collaborating with her ex-husband, Collier Young, in a, in a movie about oh. bigamy. Like, I mean, it's just... Yeah, well- <laughs> <I> mean- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, he would had an affair with John Fontaine, which was why their marriage broke up. And wow,
0: I, I, di- I didn't realize that. That movie takes on a whole different context when you do that.
1: It sort of enacts this sort of deconstruction of marriage and social institutions, which is so much in keeping with Lupino's, um, you know, uh, mental landscape.
0: The last feature, uh, which is The Trouble with Angels... Uh, yeah. T- tell, tell me what you what kind of subtext you see in in that.
2: Well, I see a kind of uh, a pro- well, there are many, but one is kind of an appropriation of this is what I wrote about in the book about of object relations theory, where, um, you know, Mary, played by Haley Mills, comes to the convent school with, um. A, a real chip on her shoulder, and a very difficult, a dysfunctional family situation, and no mother. And she gradually comes to identify Mother Superior, played by Rosalind Russell, as um, the 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 good mother. And a child in this scenario needs to have bad mother and good mother be incorporated into one who can be both bad and good. That's sort of the end result. And there, there are many reputations in the film that, that go along with this. Um, when Mary's looking out the window at Mother Superior, really, she was really angrily, and we see Mother Superior just looking up at her with sort of an open and expectant expression and how Throughout the film, she kind of assimilates these various images, and um, you know, ultimately sees Mother Superior as a flawed human being, but a really good human being as mm-hmm. well, and can accept her flaws as not being uh, making her bad. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's one aspect of the film. I think it's um, you know some of the. Praise for the film has come from critics who, you'll know, see it as kind of a, you know, more in more sort of true erotic glances and so on, in those terms. Um, and I don't, I see it more in terms of these mother-daughter looks. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. mm. Can I just add one thing? I, I, I think um, it's really interesting that on the one hand, people generally see The Trouble with Angels as so different from Lupino's earlier work. You know, A Coming of Age, you know, comic film with Haley Mills and Rosalind Russell. And, but, it, you know, I, I think as Teresa's saying, you know, it really is a film about female space and female bonds. And that links it with the earlier films, very much
2: Mm -hmm. so. Mm. But, you know, sort of like what could have happened to Mm -hmm. these young women who are left in these desperate straits were left hanging Mm -hmm. in the earlier films. You know, here's what a a world for them, a haven for them, would look like. And it takes place, you know, um, deliberately enough in a world pretty much devoid of men.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is an interesting mirror of the hitchhiker, which is a yeah. world devoid of yeah. women. Devoid right. of women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Does she did she have ambitions to direct other features after that point, or did T V just kind of take over? Because she directed a lot of TV after that.
1: Yeah, she directed many, many episodes. Um, she did. She she was always working on thinking about projects. Um, and um, you know, it was it was the time when many uh, Hollywood figures were were moving over to television because that's where the opportunities were. And so that's where she went. And she joined with uh, Dick Powell and David Niven um, to um, you know on the uh, the what is the the um, company called the Four. Right. So the four stars. Four stars. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um and so she she performed um in in those episodes, but then she went on to direct comedies like Donna Reed's show and Bewitched and I was completely reliving my childhood in working on this part <laughs> of the book. Because it was all these great old episodes and who knew you know, um, like you were saying about the hitchhiker being the only film noir directed by a, a woman who knew that these, you know, um, great old uh television episodes were directed by Ida Lupino Um yeah. and, and that, that, that they they were cross generic, you know, that she directed uh, westerns like Have Gun Will Travel and The Virginian and she directed mysteries and thrillers like The Untouchables. And, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock presents, um, she directed. And her, episodes. and her
0: terrific Twilight Zones.
1: Oh my God, the math Yeah.
0: Yes.
1: Only woman. She was, that's another first, right? Or the only, she was the only woman to direct the Twilight Zone. Um, and that is an incredible episode. Um, and then she directed, um, you know, yeah, the comedies, thrillers, um, you know, um, uh, across, uh, you know, across genres and for, I would say, about 12 years. I think something like 1956 to 1968. Um, so, and, and you know, the story goes, I, you know, I have heard um, through uh, those who, who knew um, Lupino well that she actually directed many more episodes than was credited for because she would get called at the last minute you know from directors who are you know hung over oh can you come in and cover for me and um, so um,
0: that, that that TV work <clears throat> excuse me it really uh, challenged her to to, to to be as versatile as possible I mean when you think about all of these worlds that she's trying to inhabit and all these different genres but there's there's another thought I have that you know, I, I romanticize like a lot of uh, film lovers I romanticize the period of the new hollywood filmmaking the, the early 70s filmmaking mm-hmm. and I'm thinking you know Ida Lupina was really a new hollywood before there was a new hollywood the the, the 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 taboo subjects that that movies felt unafraid of exploring in those films in the in the early 70s she was right there 20 years earlier
1: that's such yes. a great point. Agree. That's yeah, a really good point. Yeah. 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 Totally agree. And mm-hmm. and I think that you know she she was um, constantly sort of working through similar themes, which is what constitutes her role as a feminist auteur. I mean, she was always interested in uh, issues of exploitation and marginalization. And she had a kind of constant tone of irony, getting also the connection to the the, the new, uh, the 70s filmmakers you alluded to. I mean, her mode was irony. Um, you know, she was interested in showing how reality, uh, diverged from hopes, dreams, and desires and the sort of Mm -hmm. drama that that inflicts on people. Um, so and she she was interested in storytelling that um, focused on um, you know men and women struggling to attain their desires despite the the obstacles they faced.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. Mm-hmm. I, I, my last question for you guys, and you both can address this question. It's actually kind of kind of a two parter. Uh, over the decades uh, since her work first premiered in the '40s and '50s, in, in, in these films that she directed. How do you see that we've reassessed these films? Do they speak to the subsequent decades in a different way? And the second part of that would be why Why do we need to see her films today? How do they speak to us today?
1: Wow. Um, well, uh, I mean, I'll take a, take a shot at that. Um, it's a very, very good question. Her work has been repeatedly rediscovered. I, I think that you know, over time, um, you know, there there have been shifts. I mean, as feminist film historians have been, um, well, let me we finish the point about rediscovery. I mean, the reason why we wrote the book is because we thought, well, okay, maybe she can stay rediscovered this time, right? Because she kept being yeah. rediscovered. And then other critics or viewers or readers would say, "Oh, but there's this problem," or you know, um, but she didn't do that. You know, instead of focusing on what she what she didn't do, we were interested in focusing on what she did do, which is as we've been talking about this hour, really, really quite, quite remarkable. You know, uh, that's that's a that's a start. And Therese, I'm sure. Yeah, um,
2: she is. She definitely is meaningful to. Uh, different audiences today Um, and I'm not saying different from the audiences at the time but I think people are more perhaps willing to speak publicly now about having been raped for example and what the uh, traumatic aftermath is and you know, so many people I've heard from, and this, I mean, of course, this is anecdotal, but say that, you know, she captured that perfectly and that, that, you know, what she does show I mean, the, the, the post-traumatic stress and yeah. how that she also likens that to post-traumatic stress, um, after returning from war in, in the, in the minister you know, who talks a bit about that, but she also makes a difference um, between men and women's reactions to trauma in that, you know, women clearly aren't, aren't heard or understood. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's not as simple as going to a, a place of bucolic bliss because, uh, to, to regain your, yourself, you know, because a, a, place of bucolic bliss it can also be a place where a rapist lurks, you know, so it's a, it's a different dynamic and the other thing is that The Trouble with Angels is a constant, constantly popular film uh, for young, for for girls um, and, you know, is is handed from, it's given from hand to hand, you know, in, in DVD form, Uh And and girls I've spoken with have have watched it. Their mothers have given it to them, and they pass it on to their friends. So it's still meaningful because it is a story of uh, empowerment uh, for girls. You know, and and it's also... It's increasingly less rare, but, you know, one of the rarer coming-of-age stories Mm -hmm. about girls. So... I mean those are my impressions. I I think she is absolutely germane today, particularly in the ever emerging discussions of the American dream and and so on. I mean she she shows us how how the American dream is is limited and it still is. It's still you know, we haven't reached a a point of parity or equality. You know, we're still Mm -hmm. fighting for that. And um, anyway, the implications are are great, even
1: today. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, yeah, I agree with all of that. And also, you know, I I think that in terms of film history and social and cultural and media history, I mean, she was a forerunner to um, more contemporary filmmakers like Catherine Bigelow, who similarly crosses, you know, um, conventional gender and genre um, uh, roles, you know, by making film noir and war movies. And, um, and so I think, you know, in terms of um, that aspect of her, um, her groundbreaking career, it's it's important for people to, to know about this history. And, and, you know, so it's, it's this kind of um, both in terms of her content and her uh, quite brave and courageous and intriguing critique, searing critique of social institutions in her her films, and also her role as uh, as, uh, as a forerunner to contemporary women filmmakers, you know, who um, uh, you know are pursuing all kinds of stories and not mm. wanting to be limited by you know gender. Conventions. I think she's she's a very important figure, um, and obviously her versatility and her um, how much she did. I mean, she yeah. she just did so much for many decades, um, and so she's she's a pretty remarkable figure.
0: I I just love her, and I, I and I'm so uh, happy I'm that glad you to know, hear I, that. Uh, yeah and i I, you know kino lorber released their blu-ray blu-ray set of her work i think last year and you know all of all of her all of her movies that she directed are available for streaming i i'm just so glad this work has been preserved and and that you guys have written about it you guys have carried on her legacy by by filling us in about these great films
1: thank you so much jamie thank you jamie